0: So, thank you, Pat, and uh, I want to offer my congratulations to the Council as well on uh, on their 30th anniversary. And to uh, thank John Duke Anthony once again for uh, uh, having the, uh, the courage to uh, invite me back here to speak once again. So, uh, the other thing I should say uh, as an addition to my CV is that I've recently joined the board of the Middle East Policy Council. Uh, who produced that fabulous uh, uh, publication, Middle East Policy? And if you all do not have a copy of that, you should uh, you should sign up uh, instantly. Um, so this is the good news panel. After uh, a day and a half of intractable problems, uh, issues in in Syria, issues issues in Egypt, uh, issues throughout the region. Uh, US Arab business has to be a bright light. Uh, So I'm delighted to be up here sort of representing the business side and uh, offering all of you uh, a little bit of uh, joy in your afternoon. So we have a really good panel today and uh, what I'd like to do is briefly introduce them. Uh, We have uh, Ambassador Patrick uh, Theros who's the Executive Director of the U.S.-Qatar Business Council and former U.S. Ambassador to Qatar, and he's going to talk about business opportunities in Qatar. We have Ken Close, who's the Founder and CEO of Quincy International and formerly the Senior Policy Advisor to His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. Ken is a very uh, well-known and experienced uh, business advocate and practitioner in the Kingdom of, of Saudi Arabia. We have Ms. Nahla al jubair who's the director uh, at the Center for Career Development at the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission, and the former Deputy Director for Financial and Administrative Affairs at the Saudi Health Mission. And Nahla is gonna t- talk to us about some of the excellent work that the Cultural Mission is doing in preparing Saudis for the business environment. And then we have Mr. Nathan Reagan, who's the country manager for the United States of the Bahrain Economic Development Board at the Embassy of the Kingdom of uh, Bahrain, and we're gonna hear about uh, opportunities uh, in Bahrain. And finally, as a commentator, we have Ambassador Dr. René Leon, who's uh, with the economic, uh, he's an economic growth consultant with the Creative Associates International. So briefly, and I understand uh, that we are well behind schedule here, but briefly I just wanted to say that, you know, the business opportunities uh, in the Middle East today are fantastic. And the business opportunities, specifically for U.S. companies in this part of the world, has been getting better and better and better since the financial meltdown of 2008 of and 2009. And as Ambassador Smith very eloquently described uh, earlier, Uh, the number of U.S. companies participating in this boom uh, has increased significantly. Uh, And one of the points I always like to make, and many of you who were here last year will will remember this, but uh, I used to joke with all of my uh, diplomatic friends at the uh, the embassy that uh, Saudi Arabia, which was uh, created as a nation in 1932, issued the first oil concession to Standard Oil of California in 1933, and it was only six months after that that U.S. diplomatic relations began with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, so business has always led diplomacy in the Middle East. And from a U.S. standpoint, uh, I think this this has always been the case. As one of our U.S. presidents famously said, the business of America is business, and the Middle East is probably uh, as good an example of this as as any. So with that, uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to call Naha Jubair to the podium to talk a little bit about the work she's doing with the Saudi cultural mission.
1: First, I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me to speak at such a wonderful event. Um, As's as been mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the Center for Career Development. Um, it is part of the Saudi cultural mission, Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission. Um, <clears throat> the center was uh, established in March 2013 to assist Saudi students in broadening their skills. Uh, skill sets and uh, deepening their professional experience by uh, connecting them with potential internship opportunities and also training opportunities in the United States and helping them find jobs in the kingdom with uh, US and American companies. Um, The need for this center became evident when uh, when we consider the number of students we have in the United States. Um, So just to let you know, uh, let me give you some data. In May 2013, we had 7,283 students graduate from American college and universities. That's a big number and um, currently the number of students is over 82,500 students in the United States. Um, I could give you a specific number, but by the time I'm finished with my uh, talk, that number would have changed because our numbers are not static. They're continuously changing. They're very dynamic. Um, And also, um, if if we look at historical data, um, since um, the launch of King Abdullah um, scholarship program uh, in 2005, we've seen an average growth in the number of students by about 30% annually. Um, So in 2005, before the program started, we had under 3,000 students. And now we have over 82,000 students. That should say something about the program. And if you further look into our data, our three biggest sectors, uh, majors, are in business and management, in engineering, and engineering industries, and information technology. Now, uh, why is the center trying to assist uh, students in finding internships and training opportunities in the U.S.? Well, because of the benefits students will gain uh, from training in the US, one is opportunity for translating um, classroom learning into practical experience. Uh, They get exposed to potential employers before making a final commitment to work for that company. And there's also the opportunity for cultural exchange between students and um, the um, companies. Um, When a student comes to the United States and and he or she attends universities, they get exposed to the academic life. And then with time through the communities, they get exposed to the social life. By going and working for American companies, they get exposed to the professional life. So that would round their experience in the United States, which is one of the reasons they're being sent abroad for this cultural experience. The other being, of course, the education. Having said that, what are the benefits for companies uh, that partner with the centre and provide internships and uh, training opportunities to our students? Well, there are many, and I'm just going to say a few of them. One, by partnering with us, um, you will have access to a large pool of well-educated Saudi students. Remember, we have 82,000 plus. you will also, by hiring them here, you will uh, lower your overseas training costs. So instead of hiring them in Saudi Arabia and then bringing them to the United States for training, they're already here. So that would uh, reduce the lo- uh, you don't have to pay the um, relocation costs. Also, it will give you op- companies an opportunity to know prospective employees uh, before offering offering them a permanent job. And also, there will be a cultural exchange between the employees in the US companies and the Saudis. Um, this way, uh, the employees get to know who we are as Saudis, which at uh, times can differ a lot from what you see in the media or the stereotyping. So that can break through these barriers and. I mean, uh, by knowing each other's culture, you're less likely to um, have misunderstandings, which can be very costly to companies. uh, So it's another good opportunity. Having said that, what are the um, benefits for organizations in Saudi Arabia? Again, they will have access to um, well-educated Saudi students. They will have lower hiring costs because they don't need to go to job fairs throughout the United States to find our students. They don't have to go through recruiting companies to find our students. We are there for them to assist them reaching those students. Again, another one is the um, decrease in overseas training costs. I had mentioned earlier. You know, you don't have to bring them over, uh, which uh, you, the company would then incur um, uh, relocation costs, and also by um, Saudi companies hiring uh, students. that that have studied in the United States. They're hiring people who are familiar with the American culture, and they're proficient in the English language. Um, So they become valuable assets and resources to the company that's hiring them, so that when um, they negotiate with US companies, they're better able to negotiate, better able because they know where the Americans are coming from. They know the American culture, they know the American language, so there's less likely to be misunderstandings, again, which can be very costly. Now, having uh, said that, um, what, how can you, the companies, um, connect with Saudi students? Well, we have, um, uh, companies can post ads on our websites. They, um, we have a job art set up that is only accessible to SACM students, which is the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission students. Um, currently, we have pro- about 3,000 uh, students that have signed up on the job board and over 100 companies that are posted jobs uh, on our website, on our job board. And currently those two means are free of charge, so uh, there's not much you find in the United States that's free, but please take advantage of it. Um, And then the third one are the job fairs. Currently we have one job fair which coincides with the graduation ceremony that takes place at the end of of May. We're hoping to um, uh, increase that number four and make them some of them more um, sector-specific. We're hoping to have a a job fair for healthcare, one for business and IT, and then one for engineering and engineering industries. Okay, now uh, let me give you some uh, examples of positive internship and training programs. Um, We had uh, Al-Anoud. She was a second-year software engineer student. She was asked to test a um, software program. Whenever she tried to run the program, it would crash. It turned out um, that she was able to find seven bugs that were affecting the program. Remember, she's a second-year student working for a big company. She was able to find those. Um, Another one was Jafar. He worked in uh, business uh, development uh, and performed an analysis uh, of the training market opportunities for a Fortune 100 company. Uh, his recommendations were well received by senior um, leaders of that company. And then my final example is um, a major US company had offered 20, over 20 internship programs to our students. The following year the company offered employment to most of these students. Um, the students now will go undergo a two-year training program. Before being assigned to their jobs in uh, at the, comp- uh, the company's Saudi operation, um, so uh, with that information, uh, we encourage you um, to partner with the Center for Career Development because um, we believe it's such a win-win situation for everybody. Um, and um, for more information, I have. Left some uh, flyers outside in the atrium, um, or you can contact me or the center. We are located inside the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission Building, which is in Fairfax, Virginia. You can also reach us, uh, you can also check us out at um, www.sacm, which www.sacm.org, or you can email us at ccd for Center for Career Development at um, sacm.org. Uh, thank you for your time. That's about it.
0: Just to put some of those student numbers in uh, perspective, uh, Nahla uh, told you that we have uh, now over 80,000 Saudi students in the U.S. To put that into context, uh, immediately prior to 9-11, the, uh, the total, uh, the maximum number of uh, Saudi students in the U.S., I think, it had reached about 14,000. Immediately post 9-11, it went down to 2,000. Uh, When I arrived in 2007, the number had gone up to 11,000, and so to have gone from 11,000 to 80,000 is uh, is a remarkable increase, uh, due principally to uh, King Abdullah's scholarship program, but also to the hard work of of the Saudi Embassy. So uh, I just wanted to recognize that. Moving on, uh, we're going to hear next from Ken Close. Uh, as I said, the founder and CEO of Quincy International, and Ken will talk about business opportunities, specifically in Saudi Arabia.
2: Can I talk from here? Is that, you can. Does that work? Okay, Definitely. good. So uh, let me say a couple things before I start. Uh, first about Nahla, uh, she's a little too modest. Uh, we've been working with her for one of our clients to find postdoc students, and of the 82,000, they're about, uh, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think there are about 2,000 postdocs. Um, or, excuse me, doctoral candidates, and then each year about 800 of those come up as postdocs postdocs, as finish their doctoral work. And for our client in particular, this was important. And the data that they have and their ability to communicate with these kids and, and understand exactly where they are and what, what kinds of candidates there are quite, quite extensive. So I, I do recommend uh, working with her and her team. It's, uh, it's very rewarding, and a lot of these kids are really sharp and, and become useful very quickly. Um, so... Let me jump into my uh, remarks. I'm trying to keep them really short today, so hopefully we can have a bit of a conversation at the end of this um, with some questions. Uh, I thought I would begin by borrowing a theme from one of our earlier speakers at the conference, uh, my friend and mentor, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, when he talked about change and no change. Um, But Don't worry, it's going to be in a business context, we're not going back to foreign policy and and as as Ford said, this is a good news panel Um, and it is a good story. So I'll focus on uh, specifically how to be successful doing business in the Middle East and since we have a very short period of time, this will not answer a lot of questions, but it will set the stage for it hopefully specifically Saudi Arabia, because that's where we focus. Um, by way of background is, as, as Ford said, I run a merchant bank that specializes in the kingdom, and we help our, qu- our clients every day answer that question, how do I be successful, where can I play, and how do I win? Um, one way to put this in context is to look at how business requirements have changed from the Saudi perspective, instead of from our perspective, over the last 35 years, since the first oil boom, if you will. What have businesses had to do differently over those years in order to be successful in a place like the Kingdom? Which I think has great, it's analogous to other places in the Middle East, but it's what I know, so we'll stick with that for now. Initially, it was simply a matter of selling your products there. Quite pure and simple. There was a gold rush on, and people needed to buy stuff, and if you had something, and you could actually get it through the port of Jeddah, which was very difficult, you could sell it. Um, Soon the market demanded that you support and maintain your products as well because uh, it's a harsh environment and they tend to break down quickly. In the early days that largely meant sending it back to the country of origin for repair or replacement. The obvious next step was for companies to be required to support their products and maintain them locally in the kingdom. Uh, And then the next step after that was to do it with Saudis, to Saudiize and to to train Saudis to maintain and support that equipment. And and perhaps even set up regional hubs where uh, other equipment that you sold elsewhere in the region could be repaired there in Saudi Arabia. That was a, that's a long process. It's still going on. Even today, GE is taking big steps to finally localize the production of their turbines, um, for which I think the market, something like 80% of the market for that particular turbine was Saudi Arabia. But it took them a fair amount of time to get there, but they've done it, and quite successfully, I have to say. Um, More recently the market began to demand even more local content and this is where you hear things like technology transfer and knowledge transfer, but effectively what it meant initially was manufacture in the kingdom and there are lots and lots of joint ventures, hundreds of them were set up to manufacture things in the kingdom. Um, That's a lot of change in 35 years, that's a lot of different business cycles if you will, if you want to just use that word for a minute. So let's look at what hasn't changed. We talked about change and no change. What hasn't changed throughout that time period? And I think here's where you'll start to see how to be successful perhaps a little bit. What hasn't changed is really quite simple. What hasn't changed is that to be successful, you have to be proactive about your relationships with your customers. You have to listen to them. What hasn't changed is that success requires you to align your interests with theirs. Um, The good news is that Saudi Arabia has made it very clear what their objectives are. Uh, One place you can find it where it's laid out quite precisely is in the National Industrial Strategy, but there are many departments, many ministries that have laid out this strategy quite effectively. And in a nutshell, it's quality job creation, uh, it's technology transfer and knowledge transfer, but all of this feeds right into broadening their industrial base, away from hydrocarbons in part, but not, not, not exclusively. Um, So, if you go back and just quickly look at the, the sort of arc of that development cycle, in the early days it was all about basic infrastructure and it was about building that core industrial base around hydrocarbons. And there was another big focus which was speed. It had to be done fast. Uh, and it was done fast. Um, Today the focus has switched to sort of quality of development. I think I'd look at it, I'd think about it in terms of quality as opposed to quantity as opposed to just pure infrastructure. And they're looking for a vast expansion of a different kind of infrastructure and that's what Nahla was talking about, which is the knowledge infrastructure. And this King in particular has done a lot to to change that. But now's the time when the companies have to start to pick up the baton and and help. Because it's one thing to educate, it's another thing to enter the workforce and to be productive in the workforce. Um, so Saudi Arabia's been very pr- proactive about their economic development, particularly in the last five to ten years. And for us to be successful, I think we just have to listen uh, and then align ourselves with those objectives and we will be successful as well. Um, what does that mean? That means becoming a partner more than being a vendor. Uh, and you can do that uh, quite effectively. You'll sort of end up in a natural way in that position if you do align yourself with their objectives and, and act on it. Um, It's hard, it's not easy, but so as Winston Churchill said a long time ago, there's nothing wrong with change as long as it comes in the right direction. Um, And I would say pretty clearly from a business perspective that this new direction that Saudi Arabia is in now, this requirement that we spend a lot more time focused on how to develop economic value in the country with Saudis uh, is the right one clearly for them. Um, It's also one we can all benefit from if uh, and quite easily uh, if we listen well and work together as partners. So I'm happy to give specific examples during the Q&A session but I just want to set it up like that.
0: One other comment to set the scene is uh, as most of you know certainly the GCC states uh, have a huge uh, level of income at the moment. Uh, Saudi Arabia for instance with oil uh, prices at over hundred dollars a barrel, uh, their daily revenue is close to a billion dollars a day, and that's serious money in anybody's uh, uh, context. Uh, The other countries in the Gulf, likewise, are benefiting from huge revenues. And this, of course, means uh, large spending programs uh, sponsored by the governments, and therefore, huge opportunities uh, on the business side. So I'd like to turn next to uh, Ambassador Patrick Theros, um, who's the executive director of the U.S. Qatar Business Council, to talk about uh, opportunities in Qatar. Thank you
3: Thank you. Very, thank you very, this working. Thank you very much. Uh, talking about opportunities in Qatar is something that could take perhaps most of this afternoon and well into the morning. Uh, we have eight minutes. <laughs> i I'm, I'm actually going to speak) Five. A little less than that, but anyway. Uh, we have a program of infrastructure development leading up to the World Cup in 2022 that is exceeding $180 billion projected. There are, uh, the government of Qatar has dedicated 2% of GDP into the foreseeable future for research development and education and related issues. The opportunities for American companies are, frankly, almost endless. What I would like to talk to today, however, is about a couple of the challenges that we face. Our mission statement at the U.S. Qatar Business Council remains to enhance the relationship between the two countries. We believe that expansion of commercial and financial relationships plays a critical role in enhancing that relationship. In that regard, particularly in the Arab world, I have no doubt that enhancing personal relationships, getting people to talk to people, is the foundation on which we're going to build our future. One of the glories of the free enterprise system is that once we get people with skill, good intentions, and reasoned pursuit of mutual interests into the same space, usually we can count on these people to create a mutually beneficial outcome. Unfortunately, circumstances have combined to make that getting the same people into the same space a bit more difficult. There are so many places where government action, a changing environment, many other factors have just gotten in the way. Some of those those changing circumstances are of our own making here in the United States. Just to cite a couple of good examples. Since the beginning of my foreign service career in 63, I've been convinced that recruiting Arab students into American universities has been the bedrock of building relationships. Four years at a university burns loyalties, friendships, and future preferences into your mind. All of us know that it often determines where the graduate may go for his honeymoon and where he takes his kids on vacation. It also means that he's now got friends to do business with. Serving in Jordan, and this is to talk about loyalty for schools, I once hosted the president of Georgetown University, my alma mater, at dinner and put out the word uh, to as many GU alumni as I could find. It was about 30 or 40. Uh, 135 people showed up that day representing virtually every sector of Jordanian society. Unfortunately, we seem to be doing our best to make it more difficult for Arabs to study here. As Ambassador Fraker said, we at least have, I believe, turned the corner, but a lot of damage was done from 9-11 on. In the 1960s, the U.S. government offered thousands of undergraduate scholarships. In my first week as Vice-Consul at Tehran in '64, I processed a U.S. government scholarship and visa to the very first girl from Bahrain to go to university in the United States. Today, the U.S. offers virtually no undergraduate scholarships. In the aftermath of 9-11, we revoked the I-20s of literally thousands of Arab students because their names bore some relationship to someone on some watch list. For example, I got personally involved trying to help the daughter of a UAE friend whose I-20 was revoked between her junior and senior years at a well-known New England University because, as we discovered three years later, she shared a patronymic and a family name with a 50-year-old Afghan Mujahideen. Twelve years later, the last time I checked, she still her name was still on the, uh, on the watch list. Since then, we've taken the visa function away from embassies, which are the only part of the U.S. government that really knows who we're issuing visas to, and turn it over to a faceless and unaccountable army of computer processors in a number of dysfunctional domestic security agencies. Add to that the rudeness with which Arab visitors are frequently treated at US airports, some worse than others, and we should not be surprised that we discourage both students and tourists. On the bright side, a few American universities have taken the initiative and the risk of setting up shop abroad. Let me engage in a little bit of boosterism. I believe that the Qatar Foundation has initiated in Qatar the most successful such experiment with the establishment of Education City. This is a campus that houses the branch campuses of six of the most prestigious U.S. universities, Georgetown, Texas A&M, Carnegie Mellon, Northwestern, Cornell, and Virginia Commonwealth. What sets Education City apart is that these campuses have a seamless relationship with the homeschool, matriculating students into the homeschool and graduating them with a homeschool transcript and diploma, which means when the kid graduates from the Foreign Service School at Georgetown in Qatar, he has a transcript, that presented to graduate school they don't know if he would graduate from foggy bottom or from cutter but i'd also like to talk about people going in the other direction the question of americans going abroad i think we can prove empirically that the more americans working in any particular country the deeper the social cultural and even commercial relationships americans living and working for companies anywhere in the gcc and especially americans working in management and decision making jobs will skew the direction of business decisions and the procurement of goods and services to the United States, whether they do this consciously or unconsciously. And I also believe, fervently, that despite higher wages, the productivity of American employees makes them highly competitive and sought after. That is, until the Congress of the United States decided in its wisdom to try to make them uncompetitive. In a series of ill-considered decisions, Based on grandstanding about a small handful of rich Americans who hide their earnings and wealth abroad, Congress decided to make it impossible or extremely expensive for companies abroad to afford to hire senior Americans as executives. Let me just quote something from a recent Economist article. The U.S. is the only advanced country that chases its nationals, even those who have no links to the United States, for a slice of their worldwide uh, earnings. Most of the seven million plus Americans living abroad end up owing nothing, either because of the $95,000 exclusion or because they get credit for foreign tax payments, which are often higher. But they have to fill out tax forms for which a professional may charge more than the taxes owed. However, and this is where the problem begins, for those with families abroad, the costs have become unbearable. The IRS now includes all housing allowances, vacation travel, and tuition payments for children as taxable income. In the past, it calculated compensation for extremely high rentals in some countries. Now it's all in the same pot. Personally, I find lumping tuition compensation as income is outrageous. Every American child is entitled to a free public education, and even minimally adequate American equivalent public education is almost never available abroad. In Qatar, the American school tuition exceeds $25,000 per kid per year. An executive with three children will face an additional tax burden of about thirty thousand dollars, which adds either to his cost or to the cost of the company that hires him. Uh, furthermore, we've placed new and onerous requirements on filing. The Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, the FATCA of 2010, which will take effect next year, imposes an array of new reporting obligations, especially on uh, American on foreign financial institutions that serve Americans. So we designed to catch tax dodgers, but it basically is scaring foreign financial firms and banks away from even uh, treating Americans as customers. Ordinary Americans abroad now have trouble setting up foreign bank accounts or investments, and have even had existing accounts closed. Many foreign banks have told Americans abroad that they cannot use their accounts to buy securities. The earlier legislation, known as FBAR, placed murky and often o- opaque and always complicated reporting requirements that makes it impossible for Americans without expensive tax lawyers to know that what they must report. FATCA, which follows it, will ensure none of the innocent will escape. The IRS states it will not penalize those who made unintentional past mistakes, but sorting out the mess will take a year, two years, and could cost you $20,000 in legal fees. If you got it wrong, penalties for non-filing can be up to 50% of the account balance. The IRS, however, insists that going easy applies only if taxpayers enter the so-called voluntary disclosure program, which in turn will put their jobs at risk. Why would any non-American company promote Americans to executives if that requires them to open their books to the Americans and tax the uh, American tax service? I'll give a couple, uh, several examples in Cutter: um, American uh, American executives who own are. 49% owners of companies in Qatar are now giving up any signing authority for their companies because it will otherwise open the company books to uh, uh, the intrusion of the, uh, of the IRS. Pro- problem is that I don't think there are very many American congressmen who really care very much about this problem. Uh, the, the expatriate Americans usually don't vote in congressional elections. There are rarely a constituency in any one congressional district. In fact, I doubt most of these members of Congress know what an expatriate really is. In today's globalized world, American workers are a highly competitive and hot commodity, but are becoming a liability for foreign companies or even for U.S. companies working abroad. Many American companies in the GCC have no U.S. citizen executives working there. Uh, the one exception to this, as you can expect, is the only firms that seems to be able to afford keeping Americans abroad are the lawyers. In any event, <laughs> a little bit of, uh, of my soapbox, but I am trying to so make I'm, sure that so we I'm get Ambassador, a the Ambassador, tell us how chair. you
0: really feel on this issue. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: So next I'd like to uh, ask Nathan uh, Regan to... Uh, come to the podium or stay in his seat, whichever he prefers, and talk about Bahrain. Thank you. Thanks. So
4: uh, my name is Nathan Regan. I'm with the Embassy of Bahrain with the Bahrain Economic Development Board. Um, I'm not a policy wonk, so I know nothing about uh, foreign policy as it pertains to the Middle East, but I, I have worked for almost all of my career in foreign direct investment and export promotion. I I worked in my previous positions with the French Foreign Ministry and the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I'm glad that the uh, Bahrain government has allowed me to take this position. So today I want to talk about business development and how uh, the Bahrain government is focusing on business development. Uh, Bahrain actually has a free trade agreement between the United States uh, and Bahrain, which allows the free flow of goods and services into and out of the kingdom. Um, And when we tell the story about Bahrain, it's it's not really about all about Bahrain, right? It's about Qatar, it's about Saudi, it's about Oman, it's about the GCC, right? So US companies, which is who we're dealing with on a daily basis, if they're looking to the GCC as an export market or an investment market, we of course think that uh, Bahrain is a place that they should come and locate. Uh, There's 0% corporate tax. So, for U.S. companies who are setting up as a as a favored uh, as a favored company in the in the kingdom, they have a zero percent corporate tax, zero percent personal income tax, uh, which is an added benefit to business development in the kingdom. Right. We have five key sectors that we're working on, um, and we are traveling around the country in the United States uh, at trade shows, meeting with companies uh, at those trade shows, and of course, setting up congressional congressional led delegations. Into and out of uh, of the kingdom, so we are working together with uh, with our neighbors sometimes uh, to actually put together programs for U.S. companies to go into the GCC. They can spend two days in Bahrain, two days in Qatar, two days in Dubai, um, and really get a feel and a flavor for how business is, is conducted in those in those countries, right in those kingdoms. Um, certainly, one of the other benefits for doing business in Bahrain is uh, the ability to own. U.S. company to own the corporation, 100% wholly owned subsidiary, right? So you're not forced to actually take a percentage partner uh, for a local partner, that is, for doing the business. Um, so there's a story to be told for Bahrain and about how they're actually doing the business development in the in the kingdom. Um, it certainly is focused only on business development, at least from our organizational standpoint. Um, we are trying to take advantage of the free trade agreement and the tax uh, tax benefits that will allow U.S. companies. To actually come into the kingdom, do business in the GCC, uh, from from the kingdom into our neighbors, uh, and also in Bahrain, uh, and that's the mandate that we have from our organization here uh, in Washington. And in the interest of time, I'll I'll see the rest of my my comments. This
0: this is great, short but sweet. Uh... So, our final uh, speaker will be Ambassador uh, Dr. René Léon, whose uh, title on the agenda is commentator.
5: Well, thank you very much. It's uh, an honor to be here and uh, to congratulate the um, U.S. Arab Council on behalf of Creative Associates, and we're very proud to sponsor this this event. Uh, I think that uh, from hearing to all the presentations, one big conclusion is that the worst of times can be the best of times. And uh, I think that, uh, what, that exactly what the Arab world is doing, trying to take advantage, uh, to move to a knowledge economy, doing their own uh, efforts, at, we heard during the launch, at their own pace, according to their culture and tradition. But moving forward, uh, we're very happy in our company to see that uh, most of the Arab countries have their own vision for the future, whether it's twenty twenty in Oman or twenty twenty five in Saudi, they have a very clear roadmap of where they wanna go and how they wanna get to these points. And what we're hearing now from 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 the uh, speakers is precisely that that they know what direction going. Are they, they the direction where, where they're going. Uh, I think that the effort by the Center for Career Development is has to be commended. Uh, On and on and on our uh, company's experience is that uh, unemployment among well-educated graduate university graduates is growing exponentially in in some countries including countries in in the Middle East and I think that it's very important that uh, the government is giving a service to students that traditionally one expect that universities will will provide to to students and to have a government uh, having its critical mass that will work in the construction of the future to provide these experiences to be exposed to this technological and knowledge transfer for a, a leap to a um, knowledge economy, I think that it has to be commended and uh, it's, it's win-win, it's smart, and I think that other countries should look into this effort. Uh, can Close uh, talk about the uh, business opportunities in, in Saudi Arabia and how you can be successful there. Uh, the evolution uh, has uh, basically in the last three five years that he mentioned it, uh, it's is an evolution that uh, where the market is, is getting more consciousness where demand driven uh, customers are asking for their rights but also are sending the signals for companies who want to establish business there. I think that um, the, the most important uh, comment that I will have uh, in, in this case will be that um, a, to be a partner rather than a vendor it's, it's, it's a key to success, not only in these uh, markets, but it's a, a key to success in almost a, every market. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to know that uh, technology transfer knowledge uh, brought in the industrial base and being a complement of the vision that a government has will ensure a company's success in a market like like Saudi Arabia. Um, Then um, we have terrorists posing uh, challenges for uh, strengthening the trade relationship between countries, specifically in this case between Qatar and the United States. Uh, Being myself an immigrant, I clearly understand what he's talking about in terms of uh, restrictions to students, restriction uh, to study in the United States, revocation of I-20s uh, for students, and uh, it's, uh, it, it actually suppresses what uh, the um, the embassy of Saudi Arabia is doing. It uh, curtails. The opportunity for these students to have a critical mass, and then go back to their countries and become U.S. allies. Being, uh, you know, frankly speaking, myself, I am a Fulbright student, and uh, I came to the United States to study as a Fulbrighter, and I then ended up to represent my country's interest to the White House for 15 years. And I think that uh, if that's the logic, and Fulbright has it right, had it right 40 years ago, uh, some sort of uh, considerations should be made uh, to, to restrictions, not only to bring students from, from other countries uh, without, you know, not uh, ignoring security matters, but also in terms of the equal treatment, national treatment to, own, to, to American citizens that work and do business in the United States, and work and do business in a country like, like Qatar, to have to deny national treatment to your own citizens is a concept that it's it's very rare to tell you the truth. But coming from Congress and myself, being a, <laughs> dealing with Congress for the last 15 years, I only remember what um, Winston Churchill used to say: "Americans always do the right thing." After exhausting all other possibilities, <laughs> so U.S. Congress, I think it's uh, it, it's it, it's an institution that you have to to force to act in some ways, and this will uh, I will close this uh, a comment with uh, what Reagan said, and this is very important. I think that part of the of the solutions to whatever uh, trade restriction and investment restrictions are there with the Arab countries lies in the fact that a free trade agreement will ensure national treatment to Americans which is a little bit again weird. In a former life I was a trade negotiator and uh, we were always demanding national treatment to our own national and uh, the only way actually to, to ensure the national treatment to your own national, but the nationals to your own country could be through a free trade agreement that also get rid of the fact of double taxation and brings a lot of a lot of benefits. So I think that the region in general should explore more uh, the, the perspective of having a free trade, free trade agreement with the United States. Currently, if I'm not mistaken, is Bahrain, is Morocco, is uh, Oman, and um, I think there are too few countries uh, in the Arab world who have explored free trade agreements with the United States, and I think that in a global economy, and if they want to move to a knowledge economy, uh, I think that that's the path to follow, free trade. Thank you so much.
0: So, we have uh, plenty of time for, for questions, uh, which is pretty unusual for this conference, but. Uh, delighted that that's the case. Uh, I think the system uh, this year is to write questions down on the paper, the pads that are at at your tables. Uh, I don't see many of those uh, pieces of paper making their way up here so we can shortcut this by simply asking people uh, if they do have questions, to raise their hand. I'll recognize them. I'll ask you to speak up so everyone else can hear you. If you aren't able to do that, I'll try and translate. Sir.
2: for Americans and uh, internationals. So Is that a do you have any
5: cool <laughs> Well, I, I have to do a disclaimer here. I'm not perfect. I'm not a lawyer, and not an immigration lawyer. But uh, your question from a business point of view, I, I think it's very important. Uh, there was a time where free trade agreements, for instance, like NAFTA uh, with Mexico, will include uh, trade visas and uh, business visas for Mexicans national who want to do business in the United States. And uh, I don't know, for instance, if that possibility has been exhausted or not. But it will be very interesting to to, to figure out what will be the reaction of including uh, facilities in terms of immigration. Uh, to, to business people and, why not, to students. In terms of dual uh, citizenship, it depends on the national context. I know many uh, countries in the world, specifically from Latin America, for instance, where you can hold a passport of the United States and a passport of the country of origin. Of course, that facilitates matter, that simplifies matters. And uh, it's only if you want to uh, participate in a political process, or in a political election, or you want to, to do something that, it's, uh, that an elected of, you want to become an elected official, that you will have to surrender one of, uh, of your passport. I think that globalization implies the possibility to, le- to legally be a citizen of the, wor- of the world. And if that can be materialized in terms of having one, two, three, four passports, I think that that will be a, a very important for, for moving forward. The United States and other countries in the world.
0: Okay, we have we have received uh, a few written questions, and I have one for uh, Nahla, and the question is: uh, Are the students able to remain in the USA on their student visas during their internships?
1: Well, the U.S. government allows students um, training or post-graduation training for one year while and still on the F-1 visa. Um, So that's another benefit for um, companies who want to hire Saudi students here, train them here, and then send them to their um, uh, branches in Saudi Arabia or their subsidiaries or partners, is that they can be here for one year. Um, They can work on that uh, while they're on the F1 status. If they're STEM students, which are science, technology, engineering, and math, that one year can be extended for another 17 months, so a total of 29 months for those students. And recently, I heard something about an H3 visa, which is a training visa for students um, who, don't, quali- I think, don't qualify for the STEM extension, where the company can um, uh, sponsor the student on a training basis, um, the restriction being that the training that the student receives in, Saudi- in the United States is not available in Saudi Arabia, and that when the training is completed, the student return- leaves the country to go back home.
0: Thank you. Um, one of the other questions has to do with uh, ways in which Saudi Arabia can v- motivate people to come and visit. Uh, how can they make the uh, visa process uh, easier? And uh, having spent a, a good part of my time as ambassador working on the, on the visa issue, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, if you want to come to Saudi Arabia on business, uh, we've done everything possible to make that a lot easier. Uh, one of the things we were able to do is is to generate five-year multiple-entry visas for uh, Americans to come to Saudi and for Saudis to come to the U.S. Um, this is one of the reasons that you've seen such a dramatic rise in the in the number of Saudi students here in the U.S. Um, but it really is uh, all about a focus on business. Uh, I, I don't believe that Saudi has a category of tourist visa, uh, per se. Uh, so uh, that perhaps is something that will, that will come in the future. But certainly, the topic of this uh, discussion is business, and if anyone wants to come to Saudi Arabia on business, you can get a visa. Uh, we have another uh, question that concerns uh, current policy and other obstacles to expansion in the, uh, uh, in the telecom and information technology area in the Middle East. Uh, I don't feel qualified to answer that. I wonder if, uh, if, if Ken might have some thoughts or any of the other uh, panelists might have some thoughts on, on information and information technology uh, policies or obstacles.
3: Uh, I can't think of any obstacles in particular with regard to cutter Qatar. the cutteries have uh, uh, created a rather remarkable institution that was originally known as ICT cutter uh, under the leadership of a remarkable woman which has been sponsoring research development and implementation of telecommunications and uh, uh, other internet and IT policies it is now morphed into a full-scale ministry uh, It. It is a field into which the cutteries are prepared to put a significant amount of resources uh, and are always looking for new ideas, new, uh, uh, new, t- uh, new technologies that can be incorporated into what they're doing. They have also an excellent, excellent reputation in terms of protection of intellectual property, a change over the last 10 years, I must admit, but a change for the better. Okay. Thank you.
0: Uh, obviously uh, ambassador Theros uh, struck a nerve with a number of people who've had the experience of being expats uh, overseas um, you know this is uh, it's an ongoing issue that, that all the US embassies have to deal with in their countries because there are US uh, expats living there and the the tax problems uh, that he alluded to uh, are, are common everywhere uh, most of the embassies and the and the business uh, Certainly in Riyadh, there's an American business group in Riyadh, and the American business groups throughout Saudi Arabia organize uh, an annual door knock, as they call it, where a group of them come over and spend uh, a week to ten days up on Capitol Hill, knocking on Senator and congressman doors, lobbying on behalf of uh, the expat community. Uh, it's a very tough sell. Because the politics uh, of it, uh, as has been pointed out, aren't compelling for many people on Capitol Hill. Um, In many ways, uh, probably the most effective way of doing this is to invite our Saudi, Qatari, and and other friends to come over and do that marketing for us. Because often what you hear in these countries uh, is that uh, you have American companies coming in and setting up, but where are the Americans? Uh, and in many parts of the world, if you invited an American company to come in and, and work in your, in your country, you want Americans to represent that company, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that. Uh, and that's certainly a theme that, that I hear, and it's, it, it will be a battle that we will continue to fight. Yes. So do you want to start on that one, Nahla?
2: Uh Or are you happy happy to pass to Ken? Uh, That's a tough one. Um, I would say that there probably are a very large number of jobs held by expats in these countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, that's, again, where my experience lies, um, that could be filled by Saudis. And so I I would probably disagree with that statement, although statistically I don't know if I'm exactly right or not. But the reason I would disagree sort of in principle is that I think um, I hear, the stories I hear from companies, it's very hard to find a Saudi who can do... X, whatever they're looking for at a particular time. And it's possible, it's very possible they haven't looked hard enough. Uh, It's also, there are a lot of factors that sort of figure into that. I think one thing governments forget when they're in charge of labor programs is that, and this is a controversial thought, um, it's fine to hire people, but you have to be able to fire them because otherwise there is no work ethic. So if you really want to improve your job market, you've got to give labor, it has to be able to move freely, both ways. And that's very hard for governments. It's very hard for for governments that privatize, for example, look all over Latin America when they privatize giant phone companies and, and giant sectors of the government, you end up losing a lot of jobs. And so it's difficult, it's painful. And so I think creating jobs or replacing expats is fine, Uh, But then you've got to be able to make sure that the people who show up for work are going to show up every day. And if they don't, they can get fired. That's really hard to do. Um, So it's really easy for labor ministries in in any country to to mandate certain hiring requirements. They never mandate firing requirements. They never give you the freedom to fire or often, I shouldn't be very careful here, but often don't. So I think it has to go both ways if you're actually going to have an effective workforce. So I'm sort of so somewhat off topic, but that's my...
0: So we have a lot of people up here who want to comment on this, so I'll, I'll start with
5: Dr. Leon. <laughs> you have
2: more experience yeah. than me, I'm
5: sure. <laughs> no, Very quickly, uh, we have been doing uh, programs, workforce development programs in, in some countries around the world, uh, and been following very closely the situation in the Middle East. And the situation is the same, I, I just will give you a rough example. Of the situation, for instance, in the healthcare sector in Saudi Arabia, in 1970, out of the total of physicians in the country, only 21% were Saudis. Currently, out of in 2013, out of 66,000 physicians in the country, only 22% are Saudis. So uh, that uh, uh, data reveals a lot of. Uh, a lot of truth of what is happening there. It's not a lack of employment. Uh, it is, I think, a, a, a they have to refine, to better refine the main po- their manpower demands, their manpower models, and uh, align their policy accordingly. Same situation you can find in the tourism sector, the same situation you will find in the finance sector, the same situation you will find even in the oil sector. So it's, it's, it's interesting because it is not lack of, of employment. I think it's lack of planning in terms of, of good planning in terms of manpower models.
2: Thank you. Nathan? And, and cost, because local employees cost more. You can't, you can't hire a local Saudi for a particular job, let's say, um, and pay them the same as you would a third country national from, some, you know, from a, a country where labor rates are much lower. So there's a, there's a lot of factors. that fit. I didn't realize the statistic for that stark, though. Okay. That, that's interesting. Nathan?
4: Just a couple points from the Bahrain standpoint. Um, from a cost uh, perspective, actually, the Bahraini government, they have a labor fund that they actually train locals to do, to do the jobs that, that U.S. companies are looking for, and they provide that as a free service. And in addition to that, they also subsidize the salary of the person who is actually working for that U.S. company. So the government has been very proactive about trying to, to increase that type of Bahrainization that we have in, in Bahrain. Um, And I also wanted to comment on one thing about a recent law that's changed in Bahrain that allows uh, workers to actually move freely from job to job. It can be, or it has been historically, that some workers who can't leave their position because they're not authorized to do that. And Bahrain has actually changed that law recently. So now workers can move freely. Going to your point uh, about moving freely from job to job and be able to, to move around, it's very important.
0: Ambassador,
4: uh,
3: In Qatar, uh, just to give you one small statistic to prove, it's not an, a labor employment issue. Right now the best guess, uh, the numbers are a little bit fluid, is that Qatari citizens make up about 5% of the total labor force. Uh, there is a jo- Anybody can work. The Qatari government is most interested in uh, using the foreign companies that are there to, for skills transfer, for transfer of technology and personal skills occasionally and I have to fault them they have failed to articulate this properly uh, the companies in return are usually operating on such high margins that the easiest thing in the world is create some nothing job and put this poor kid uh, into it the whereas the cutteries would be perfectly happy to see an American company take this kid and put him in an office in Oslo or Stockholm they re, what they want is somebody to be properly trained somebody to end up being an, a real productive employee of the company that hired him. He need not be in Qatar, and in many cases, I think they would prefer that he not be there. But there is frequently a failure to articulate on the part of one side and the other side taking the easy route and just creating a fake job. Yeah. One, one
0: comment here is that uh, uh, employing locals, Saudiization, if you will, or Qatarization, Bahrainization, whatever you want to call it. These are political objectives. And the problem is when they butt up against the realities of the marketplace on the ground. And it's one thing for a Saudi owner of a company to be told that 30% of his positions have to be Saudi. Uh, it's another thing when he sits down and does those numbers and decides that you know his business isn't profitable if he has to do that. And, and it, that's, where, that's where these issues are, are, are coming to the fore. Um, another question, uh, can you comment on the rights, or lack thereof, of unskilled and largely South Asian workers in the Gulf, particularly in the run-up to the World Cup in Qatar? Now, I don't know why we're picking on Qatar here. Uh, this is, it's, it's the, little the, guy, that's why. the little guy. This is obviously a problem through, throughout the Gulf, but
3: uh, maybe, uh, maybe Ambassador Theros <laughs> would have some comments on that. I mean, there is no doubt that throughout the Gulf and including Qatar, there is a serious problem with the uh, what I can only say is the lo- is the lowest tranche of skilled employees brought in from abroad. Uh, the laws in place to protect them exist. I'd say the cuttery laws are probably as good as, uh, as any. There is a real problem which the cutteries have publicly recognized of enforcement and forcing compliance with those laws. Uh, the problem begins in the home co- in the home country. Uh, in Nepal, for example, there's roughly 400,000 Nepali working in the uh, in the state of Qatar, Most of them in low-skilled jobs. Uh, they are hired locally by Nepali uh, uh, work brokers, uh, promise certain uh, certain salaries, certain compensation, certain work conditions, and then discover when they arrive that they aren't uh, that, that. In fact, they were sold a bill of goods. They Generally, stay because they're still better off than they were in Nepal. But that is a dreadful choice for a lot of them to make. Uh, The problem uh, probably is strongest among small uh, local companies that have low bid on projects and are trying desperately to keep their costs down. It it will take a concerted effort. There is now. The Supreme Committee for Qatar 2022, the Foreign Ministry, and the Ministry of Labor have all piled on. It will take somewhat more coordination, uh, and I say this with a certain burst of optimism that I think in the end they'll work this out. They understand that the uh, the spotlight of the world is on them because of Qatar 2022. Uh, There are some other criticisms over the weather and so forth, so the Qataris will protect uh, that award, and it's just going to be a question of figuring out, actually they know how to make it work, just a question of being able to get the apparatus of government to make it work.
0: You know, th- this is a problem that has existed in the Gulf forever. I think one of the, one of the things that makes it different now is we live in uh, an age of much greater transparency, uh, communication. Uh, the problem itself has has become a lot more visible and you have many Western governments who are are, are putting pressure on on host governments, uh, particularly on this issue. So I think it, it'll do nothing but improve, uh, but it's uh, it's starting at a pretty low base. Are we actually going to finish this session slightly early? Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank
5: you.